right. Well, listen, we are we are really um, just stretching our 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 mindset. You know, last month, two months ago or so, we talked about um, CRT a little bit about that. Well, today we're kind of following up a little bit about that, but we are dealing today definitely with uh, social justice. So, if you this week we're trying to deal with social justice, the seven day Adventist mission and social du- wow. justice. What is this relationship uh, between the the mission and social justice? And so oh, I'm so excited to hear about this today. Yeah, I know because man, there are some people that say the, the gospel. We need to preach the gospel, not social justice or or social gospel or anything like that. And there are other people. It's like, yeah, that we just need to march. We got to get out there. We got to do. And so you have this very polarized, these polarized positions even within the Seventh Day Adventist Church. So I am. That's right. Today. Um, to hear from our guest, uh, uh, Pastor Wade, who are our guests at the table today, my friend? Well, listen, when you when you think about dealing with the the word behind the word, uh, you got to get some theologians. And uh, some, mm. uh, so today we are just so excited to have with us people who understand the word of God, but also understand the Adventist mission. We have with us none other than Dr. Leslie Pollard and Dr. John Pauline, who are here with us. We are just so excited that they are here. They they have consented to join us for this uh, very riveted and relevant discussion. All right, wow, we are excited to have these gentlemen with us. This is going to be a a fascinating discussion. And um, again, we want you to invite somebody, make sure that they do not miss out on what you're about to hear. Um, Just before we begin, I'm gonna have, we're gonna ask uh, Dr. Henry to have a word of prayer to start us off. And then we're gonna give our our preachers and our scholars um, a little opportunity to just say a little bit more about themselves, where they are, what they're doing. Um, And then we're just gonna hop into this discussion this afternoon. Um, Dr. Henry. Let's do it. Let's do it. Father, again, Lord, we are so privileged, God, to be uh, able to sit down and talk about this topic. We ask God that you continue to lead us, guide us, give us understanding. And we pray, Father, that at the end of this discussion, we'll be able, Lord, to go forward with knowledge and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, Dr. Pollard is joining us. He is a a, a welcome back guest here at the Pastors Roundtable. He's a stranger to us and to our audience. We are delighted to have you again with us, Doc. Um, Dr. Thank Pollard you. is a PhD. He is a MD. He is a and you think I'm, I'm playing? I don't know. If <laughs> you crazy? <laughs> but he is a, a writer. He is a preacher. He is a homiletician. But um, Dr. Pollard, we're going to give you. What are we going to give him, guys? Uh, we're going to give him 48.96 seconds to, just go ahead and just to address the audience and just share with us. Get a, a minute. You got a minute. And then we'll extend that uh, courtesy and, and opportunity to Dr. Paul. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you all for having both of us on, both John and me. I'm sure he'll say the same. Uh, but I want you to know that as we dialogue, John is a friend of many, many, many years. And I'm, I'm very grateful that he's accepted all of our invitation to be a part of this broadcast. He's a dear friend, a New York, a New York boy. I used to, I used to, he didn't know this. I used to think of him like, like John, I love tennis. So I used to think of him like the John McEnroe of Adventist oh, ministers. Wow. Not, not, not because of, no, 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 no. Not because of the, the histrionic behavior, but if you ever watch, McEnroe is a New York boy. He's comfortable with whoever he's talking to, wherever he's talking to her. 
Okay. Uh, that, that's what I liked about McEnroe. And of course, when Arthur Ashe died, it was John McEnroe who went into the inner city and continued the Arthur Ashe Tennis Academy. So okay. that's something people don't know. Okay. So I, I think of John that way. I think of John that way. Gospels, choirs, and all that. He'll tell you about all of that. So, okay, so now my time starts. Okay, how's that? How's that? <laughs> so, um, that's the preamble. That's the preamble. Yeah, that's the preamble. That, yeah, that's taxiing on the runway. So, <clears throat> so, and what was the question? <laughs> what was the question? Uh, do you want me to introduce the topic? You no, so, so the we topic. did not read to everybody your whole resume, who you are, where you Don't are. Don't worry about any of that. That's it. Uh, so, okay, so they can go to the Oprah website. somebody who may that. not know you, what's the, what's the 38.9 seconds that you want them to Okay, so the short version is I'm currently serving as president of Oakwood University. My academic background is a PhD, New Testament Language and Literature. Emphasis in apocalyptic studies, specialty in the book of Revelation. Hmm. Uh, my doctor of ministry is in liturgics and homiletics. My MBA is in leadership and management. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had the, the MDiv, which is in ministry practice from Andrews. So that's a little bit of the academic background. Married, uh, married to the uh, Dr. Prudence Pollard, Mrs. Pollard. Uh, we've been married 42 years. Uh, we've got two children. Mm -hmm. Uh, four little grandchildren who are just the oh, delight wow. of our lives, and just they just make grandpa all mushy whenever they come around. <laughs> um, I love it, and and very much, very much involved with these topics and our church in its direction. Uh, on the church side, I serve as a member of the GC Executive Committee, NAD Executive Committee, Southern Union Executive Committee, oh boy, South Central Executive Committee. So I, I kind of live up close to all of these, the way these decisions get made and the way these things happen. So I think I think that's about it. I, I yeah, that's about it. That's right. about it. That's enough. That's well, listen. Enough. After after this broadcast, you're gonna have people writing you want to know where you got your MD from. So um, you can. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an MD, but I worked at Loma Linda for 14 years, and right. uh, I served as a member of the med school admissions committee. So I, I lived up close to the school of medicine and seeing what that process looks like. So it's awesome. fascinating, fascinating. Awesome, great stuff. Dr. Pauline, um, Dr. Pauline, I used to step in Dr. Pauline's class uh, during the uh, World Series time wearing a New York Yankees hat. And uh, <laughs> class, I don't know if you remember that, but we used to go back and forth on, on me wearing that New York Yankees hat <laughs> in your classroom when we were there at the seminary. But Dr. Pauline, the time is yours, sir. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been mentioned I started out in New York City and uh, probably one of the, the greatest memories and honors was as a teenager, uh, I got to sing in Philharmonic Hall uh, in part of Lincoln Center in New York City because I uh, got to know a fellow named John Robertson, who was mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the greatest uh, African-American uh, orchestra conductors or choir conductors uh, ever. And uh, he was just a few years older than me, and, and he brought together a choir, uh, mixing all, all the races in New York uh, from the Adventist churches, mm -hmm. and it became a powerful experience. And uh, we sang in Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall and uh, Town Hall, Brooklyn Academy of Music, and so on. So that was a, that was a formative experience for me that, that stretched me beyond uh, the world of my family and, and my neighborhood, wow. and I've always appreciated that. Um, the, uh, I then, uh, went to, uh, AUC and Atlantic Union College and then Andrews for the MDiv and then eventually the doctorate. 
uh, in New Testament. In between, I was a pastor in New York City for a number of years, uh, served uh, upstate and also in Brooklyn, uh, and then spent about uh, 26 years at Andrews uh, as a professor at the uh, seminary, Andrews University, and then went to Loma Linda and spent about 14 years, just like Les, uh, there. Uh, with a, a different kind of ministry. And uh, the most exciting thing at the moment is I'm uh, director of the Center for Understanding World Religions. And it's pushed me out into the community to get to know uh, big players among Islam, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. It's like a whole new world. Uh, to me, uh, getting to know these people. And in two weeks, uh, we have a program called Suffering and the World Religions. And we have representatives from the seven uh, most important non-Christian religions, each sharing how they look at suffering with a response from Richard Rice, who is the uh, one of the world's leading experts on that topic of suffering. So uh, it's been a whole new thing for me, but uh, stretching beyond the boundaries is sort of the story of my life. And I'm I'm grateful for God's leading all the way. Wow. Wow. Awesome. Amen. Well, listen, what, what, what better way to start our Black History celebration here at PRT? Uh, it is uh, truly a blessing to hear what God, how God has gotten mm-hmm. to this point, uh, Dr. Pauline and Dr. Pollard. I, I know a little bit mm-hmm. of your history and connecting there, especially at one of the premier HBCUs uh, mm-hmm. in the country. And so mm-hmm. we praise God for that. But we're going to jump right into the to the discussion here. Um, I want to just share with those who were watching last week, I was not able to be here, but I'm back today, but I'm not even in my normal spot. I'm in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, preparing for uh, a conference program this evening, but we wanted to make sure that uh, we we are part of the, the broadcast today. So let's jump right in. We, we are talking about the Adventist mission and social justice, but we want to look at social justice. What is social justice? And there is a little caveat that has kind of colored uh, social justice, CRT, or critical mm-hmm. race theory. Um, are they connected? Mm-hmm. Is social justice and CRT connected? Um, share with us a little bit of that. Um, we're going to start with uh, Dr. Pollard. Why don't you uh, okay. lead us off okay. in this discussion? Well, <clears throat> well, first of all, Raj, you've asked a very, very relevant question, because um, I happen to serve most recently on the 2021 Commission for the North American Division seeking to generate uh, a a statement on race relations, uh, an important statement, especially in the wake of the George Floyd summer, right? The summer of George Floyd and the racial reckoning. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, when we first introduced the statement, one of the very first things someone accused us of was saying, well, this is critical race theory. So Mm. we said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You mean as a Christian, we cannot talk about race relations without it being contaminated with that kind of allegation. So we, we kind of went back. And so the division asked me, because I gave a little speech, I said, no, well, first of all, this cannot be critical race theory before we get to defining it, because we accept the legitimacy and the validity of the scriptures. So let's start there. Because if you really understand critical race theory, it's Marxist in its origins, it's horizontal in its approach to history. There are only two classes, oppressors and oppressed, right? Mm. So uh, proletariat and bourgeoisie, you know, in, in, in classical Marxism. So this is not that. The moment we start appealing to creation, 
and to Adam in, in the garden and God's intent for human family. So, so this can't be that. So what is it that gets us to believe that this is something other than what God has expressed through Scripture as his desire for the human family? And that is to have a world in which justice and equity and inclusion and benefit is enjoyed by all. So, so, should, so, so that's kind of my little background on this. And so I, I wrote a little statement and helped, and they asked me would I pin it even further. And I did in preparation for that and, and my work on that commission. So social justice, I'm going to take my shot at it. Social justice is the, is the commitment to and the practice of equitable treatment for all people, regardless of race, culture, color, sexual origin, history, nationality, and all of the other diversities that have been used to oppress, to deny, to marginalized. Social justice is both, is both individual in its expression and it is collective in its application. Um, when I think of social justice, I think of righteousness at work in the human family. So, so, so for me as a believing, Bible-believing theologian, it is the application of righteousness, vertical righteousness, God's righteousness within the human family. It forms the foundation for witness. It is a foretaste where it is experienced. It is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. It is God's will being done on earth in anticipation of what we'll experience in heaven. That, that's, my, that's my view of it and how it how it works. It is individual and it is collective in its application. So, uh, and of course, they got lots of Bible texts, right? Lots of Bible texts, Isaiah 58, uh, you know, lots of Bible texts that can demonstrate that. Okay, okay. Dr. Pauline? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, I, as I've had a chance to explore a little bit uh, on uh, critical race theory, uh, I found some things in there that are very helpful. Uh, that uh, that makes some some interesting uh, and, and points that I think need to be uh, considered addressed. As Dr. Pollard has already mentioned, uh, there are obviously some things in there that are concerning. Uh, and so I thought uh, I would open up this whole topic from from my perspective with an Adventist approach uh, to the great controversy and the book of Revelation. I think that's a big picture that can maybe set a context when we deal with any of these political uh, types of issues. And if we believe in the great controversy idea, that there's a universal conflict between God and Satan over the character of God and the government of God, that universal battle is part of every fabric of existence. Every nation, every conflict between nations, uh, every religion, every political party, every community, every family, every church, denomination, etc., are all subject to a battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. Mm -hmm. We're all part of that battlefield. And that means to me that committing to any one political perspective as the primary thing, uh, is, is faulty in the sense that both God and Satan are at work in all of these things. And so discernment is needed as we go through to see that which, uh, what is it the scripture says, prove all things, 
you know, accept that mm-hmm. which is good, etc. So the cosmic conflict approach tells us don't be so committed to one political party, to a nation, even a denomination at the expense of the divine mission of the, the ultimate battle, which is over the character of God and the government of God. Um, I think this is uh, an illustration would be Revelation 13, where you okay. have a beast from the earth. And we've understood that Seventh-day Adventist reading, again, that's how I introduced this. Uh, we understand that to be the United States of America. And it has two characteristics, doesn't it? It mm-hmm. looks like a lamb. Mm. And it speaks like a dragon. So when you look at American history, uh, you know, critical race theory might suggest that whole history is lost. It, it's, it's a travesty, etc. There's a lamb-like aspect to it. Uh, some of the sentiments of the Constitution, etc., are, are amazing, uh, re, you know, mm. reflecting that all are created equal, etc. On the other hand, there's the, the, the abuse of the... Uh, native uh, peoples here and and of the slaves that were brought over etc so america has a checkered history and it's even worse in the sense that slavery could be tolerated in a country that had the sentiment of all are created equal that that Mm. was possible really stunning so uh, america uh, is a battleground between god Mm. and satan and uh, wow. I think that's the only safe way to look at these uh, issues. That's from a big picture perspective. Mm. So, so, so colleagues, may I, may, I, may I just add one perspective sure. in addition to, because we, we talked about social justice and Dr. Pauline has done a wonderful approach to how revelation adds insight into how we should comport ourselves. Uh, CRT, part of the reason CRT is so polarizing is because there are elements of it that are completely black and white, and that's no pun intended. Either you are an anti-racist, or by default, you are a racist. And that adds to the Mm. polarization of the theory. But the actual, but that's the politicization of the theory recently. When the Mm -hmm. theory was launched in 1970 by Derrick Bell and others, Kimberly Crenshaw and others back at Harvard, and in, law, in legal circles, they were trying to answer a question. And that question was, how do we explain the backlash against the progress of the civil rights movement in the 60s? How do we explain the backlash that we experienced in the 70s, culminating in 78 with the, the Bakke versus the University of Texas, I think, Board of Regents, the Bakke case, right? How do you explain this? Or, and what what nobody what nobody in the civil rights movement would ever have anticipated after the after the assassination of Dr. King that you would have a flood tide of opposition to something that seemed to be so congruent with the aspirations of those documents that Dr. Pauline just talked about the Independent Declaration of Independence and the um, the Constitution. So were, was the civil rights movement working in consort with the sentiments of the founding documents, or here's a theory, maybe it wasn't. Maybe the country was functioning in the mm-hmm. way it was designed to function. Mm-hmm. Thus, you get critical race theory saying, wait a minute. 
we this should be a downstream swim. But why are we fighting upstream on something that the country says it's so committed to? And now comes the theorizing that maybe, maybe, maybe America is not the America that it says it is in its dark documents. Maybe that's all aspirational, but maybe it's something else. And this is, I believe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it is racist by nature and by design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fight is to now to, to expose its ugly nature and then to work to dismantle and deconstruct it. Okay, so, mm. so so CRT is trying to say, as a theory, we need to think carefully about what the fight is and what the fight isn't. What are we fighting against and what are we not fighting? Now, I believe that as a part of this, Dr. John has pointed us to something really important, Revelation 13. When we look at Revelation 13, and when we look at, um, and when we look at, and we'll get to some of the questions, but when we look at Revelation 13, the early Adventists saw the incongruity mm-hmm. of a nation like America holding slaves. They published about it. They wrote about it. As a matter of fact, Uriah Smith wrote one of his lengthiest poems. It's quoted in that Sabbath school lesson that we're going to talk about Um later uh, colleagues. And he Mm -hmm. said, slavery makes of none effect all thy loud and professions fair. And he's writing against America. So part of what we have to look at, I believe, as we think about CRT and as we think about social justice, is where can we stand as witnesses to the kingdom as an Adventist and mission, because that's your original question, Raj, we have to stand in a space that allows us to validate the principles of the kingdom as we can best apply them within communities, providing equity and access and opportunity as a foretaste of the kingdom. And it's a part of our witness to not be, I live in a world here in Huntsville, Alabama, where if you are not engaged, you have no place to stand in mm-hmm. terms of being heard, in terms of being heard by the community. You have no place mm-hmm. to stand. Because if you are committed, you must be a, a part of this. You must we're trying to make life better for the least, the last, and the lost. And that is kingdom work. That what King was doing is kingdom work. And an Adventist, there's a great book. Someone asked for a resource. Here's a great book. A scholar by the name of Dr. Samuel London wrote a book. He's the chair of the history department at Oakwood called Seventh-day Adventist and the Civil Rights Movement. Mm. I think everybody who looks like me should read that book because it, it describes the relationship of many of these heroes and sheroes of the 1960s to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I, I got a question for you, um, Dr. Pollard. Um, uh-huh. we're, you know, you mentioned CRT, and uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned it, it emerged out of a, a framework from um, Crenshaw and Bell, and yeah, they're trying to answer a question. Other, they're trying right. to answer a question, right? Yeah. Right. So, so this this theory 
Um, I'm, I'm based on what, you know, my reading and so forth. It seems like it evolved from its original intention. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, of course it's been politicized since then. Of course. Now, now it's, now it's taken hostage by both sides on the political spectrum. It's taken Mm -hmm. hostage. It's, it's now CRT never said every little white kid is a racist. CRT never said that. CRT is addressing the country, the nature of the American body politic. That's what it's addressing. But now when you listen to people standing before school boards and poor teary-eyed parents who are deeply and honestly concerned, you mean my little four-year-old is a racist and now he's got to do racist exercises. And that's not what CRT was about. CRT is asking a question. They're saying, look, If you flood a community, you open a dam and you flood a community, and then one day you decide that you're gonna seal that dam up, what do you do about the damage that the flooding flooding created? Yeah. The the damage doesn't go away because you closed the dam. Now, Mm. that's a legitimate concern of CRT. Mm. America tried to answer that in the 70s with affirmative action. You remember Dr. King's famous speech. He said, if you tie my leg behind my back for 400 years, and then you untie it and put me at the starting line and say, now run the race, everybody's equal. He said, well, no, it, it, it doesn't work that way because the lingering effects of institutionalized racism The question is, how do we address those? That's what CRT is probing. What are the lingering effects? Now, the moment you say that, and I don't want to over-talk this, the moment you say that, then both sides of the political spectrum pop in and say, well, wait a minute. Okay, so the laws have been changed. So you're saying that if there are 100 seats in the School of Medicine, you're going to set aside five for this particular racial or ethnic group. And it doesn't matter if someone else has better scores. Meritocracy kicked in and a lot of different things. So now we begin to come apart on how do we resolve the damage that the intentional flood created? How do we correct that? That's what CRT was trying to figure out. What are the lingering effects of historic racism? Mm. So, so I, I just want I just want to make sure that we are very clear, and 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 it's not a question. I just want to make a statement that this CRT concept really began came to was really un came to light after the Charlottesville situation with the young lady who was run down, yeah. and and and, yeah, and so it wasn't be, before that we didn't hear anything about the CRT in public discourse, as you said, no. it was it was no. something in schools in law schools. And it was in the higher education piece. But now it has touched every single piece of our lives as we are moving forward, especially now when you talk about social justice. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes. you know, we have, we, we, Daphne is asking in, in, in the comments about it not necessarily being at the, pri- the, uh, the primary school or the secondary school level, but it is now in our homes as we're dealing with social justice. Um, there are parents who are telling their children they, they can't go to the protests uh, because it doesn't, you know, it's not, the connection isn't there. And, and, and so that's why we're having this conversation today to make right. sure we understand uh, truly what social justice is, and especially as it's connected to the Adventist mission. 
Right. So, so watch this, uh, Raj. Moving to the next question, though. So, as we we look at the Bible, right, and we survey, mm-hmm. you know, Old and New Testament, and we look at this this concept of social justice. All right. I want to go to Dr. Pauline first. What, based on your understanding of the Word of God? God, what is God's disposition on, you know, what you have five social justice and has social justice or can social justice hijack the gospel? I've been reading some information on that and they said, oh, you know, social justice hijacking the gospel. And there was a couple of others that said, I said, what is this? So Dr. Pauline, you know, you were my teacher at Andrews, right? Um, give, give us some light on this. What is God's disposition according your, to your understanding from the, from the Bible on social justice and can social justice hijack the gospel or is it impossible? Go ahead. Well, we'll, we'll come to the New Testament side in just a moment, but. But uh, starting with the Old Testament, you have uh, the prophets. And uh, I think Adventists have tended to read the prophets for the eschatological texts. What does it say about the end? What is the order of events, et cetera, et cetera? But if you actually read Isaiah through Malachi, the vast concern of these prophets is social justice. It's the concern of people uh, uh, being starved, uh, people being marginalized, uh, people being stolen from, you know, unjust weights, etc. cetera. Uh, so God was very, very concerned when it came to Israel. He was very, very concerned about the condition of the people. Uh, when it comes to the New Testament, however, the word gospel is definitely front row center. And uh, Jesus introduced himself to the world in Luke chapter 4. And he said, here is my mission. And he did it in his hometown, in Nazareth. Uh, Luke chapter 4, and uh, we'll start with verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So he was a good Jew. He was in the synagogue on Sabbath. But then he was given the opportunity to do the scripture reading. Hmm. And it says he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And and Luke uses this incident to say, this is my mission. Jesus is introducing why he came to this earth. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Mm -hmm. Lord's favor is nothing else than the Jubilee, which was a social uh, idea that every 50 years property reverts back to the original owner. So that if somebody messed up, Somebody blew his inheritance, et cetera, and they had to sell out that the descendants of that person wouldn't be penalized. In other words, it was like Dr. Pollard was saying, the making right after the flood. See, the damage that was done by that generation would not be passed on to the next. Uh, So the idea of taking care of people financially, uh, taking care of them socially, uh, is rooted in the gospel. So that brings the question, what's the gospel? 
why, why would that be related to the gospel? Because ultimately, the gospel is the character of God. What kind of God are we dealing with? Is it a God who, who turns his back whenever we make a mistake? Or is it a God who is relentlessly in our favor? And a God who's relentlessly in our favor isn't just in favor of those who are in favor of him. He's a God who is relentlessly in favor of all. As Matthew 5 says, he brings rain and sunshine on the just and on the unjust. Mm -hmm. God's favor is not put away because somebody rejects him. God's favor remains in place, but he won't force the person to accept relationship with him. He's there, he's open, etc. So in my view, the gospel and social justice are intimately related because like Jesus in his ministry, we are illustrating what God is like when we help the marginalized, the poor, uh, those who have been disadvantaged. When we make that the center of our ministry, we are showing what God is like. And ultimately, that's the gospel. Because to the degree that the cross of Christ was necessary, to that degree, it was God who arranged that. It is an expression of God's character. Amen. Anyway, I've uh, I've gone too wow. long, perhaps. No, no, but, uh, no, no. You, <laughs> you have not. You have not. You have Amen. Actually, you know, I mean, I mean as, a, as a minister of the gospel, yes, you have shared something that I have felt and heard. But but what you have un, unmasked there for a moment is that the good news, we, we, we always say the gospel is the good news. We always felt that the gospel is the good news. And the good news was simply Jesus dying uh, to save us from our sins. But you have just un- pulled back the covers that it's more than just that. That, is, that may be the core, but there's more to it in terms of being the character of God, in terms Amen. of this good news. See, if, if salvation is simply saving us for our, from our sins, that's kind of selfish, isn't it? Oh, I, I, I want to be part of the salvation because I oh. get a good benefit from it. No, yeah. you go to Colossians, you go to Ephesians, you go to John 12, and you see that the gospel, the cross is about tapanta in the Greek, the everything, the universe. Something about the cross not only saves people on this earth, but heals the universe. Amen. Okay. Mm. So however you express the gospel, it's got to be big enough you know, the angels who never sinned, the gospel's there for them, too, because they have questions about the character of God. You mm-hmm. see, so when the gospel becomes about the character of God, I don't see any problem with social justice because we are simply acting out the character of God in human flesh wow. in a way that wow. people can see. Amen. That's <clears throat> colleagues. May I, may I just I, I just yes, say God. amen. I mean, that, that takes your breath away because, again, yes we could spend some real time on then how did it become compartmentalized and why did it become Mm -hmm. compartmentalized? Because um, part of the irony is that within Adventism, we teach holism. We talk about the doctrine of the whole person. Our anthropology is a holistic anthropology. Well, that includes people's social conditions as well. And It's important, I think, as Dr. Pauline has pointed out, to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm -hmm. I am not working, when I am working in an underserved community, 
-hmm. and working with the city council, as we've had to do in Huntsville. Huntsville is a food desert. It's a Mm. food desert. Now, that's not my designation. That's the U.S. Department of Agriculture's designation. When I sit with the mayor and the president of the Huntsville Hospital, and I say, wouldn't you love to bring health care to the underserved of Northwest Huntsville? Those of you who went to Oakwood, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And they say, we've wanted to do that for some time, but we've not known how. And I say, let's partner together. Let's build a community health action clinic. You rent one side of that. And, and, and thus, these people who in a food desert, <clears throat> that which makes it a food desert also makes it a health desert because they don't have transportation to get to supermarkets and all those places. You can't tell me I'm not doing God's work. Matthew 25 <laughs> says to me, <clears throat> I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous say, now, Lord, when, when did, when, when? And inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, whether they are in the church or out the church, you have done it unto me. You can't tell me that's not the gospel and that's not the life of Christ being applied to a community. Mm. Hey, if the only grocery store that you have accessible to you is 7-Eleven, then your diet is basically Coke and Twinkies, right? I mean, how can a person be healthy? <clears throat> I mean, 7-Eleven, you know, God love them. You know, I stop there when I'm traveling and stuff. They pick up right, something right. here and there. But right, if that right, right, is right. your life, if 7-Eleven is your life, that's the only grocery store you really have access to. There's not much going on there that's going to be helpful. So uh, this, what Les is talking about is, is a serious uh, disparity. Mm. Well, Doc, I would add, wow. I would add 7 Eleven and a liquor store. Yeah, yeah, you. yeah, yeah. And <laughs> So now, now there is a question, though. I wanted to respond to a question because it's it's important for us to have this conversation with Adventist pastors because there are people who say, "Well, why don't we just let the Lord take care of all of this?" Right? I'm, I mean, we've all mm-hmm. heard that, right? And and mm-hmm. so one of the questions in your chat room. One of the questions in your chat room was by Aaron Smith, I think. I think it was Aaron Smith. And, oh, there it is. Do you think that race relations in America would improve before Jesus returns? Hmm. Now, I've done a lot of work on this from the spirit of prophecy, colleagues. So let let me give you the short answer. If you watch CNN, CNN will say, Look at how well we have done, because it's biased toward liberal political agendas. And and that's true. That's real. That's real. So look at how well we've done so far. And these people who are racist are just crazy anomalies. Fox will say, with this conservative bias, look, how can you say we're so bad? We elected a black man to be president. So, So both of them have an agenda an agenda that argues out of their own interests that race relations are improving every single day. It's almost an evolutionary hypothesis. Well, I I took that question to the spirit of prophecy in the context of Ellen White and the changes around the turn of the century and the, the need for mission among colored people. 
of the colored people, as she called us. Okay, so here is what I found. Uh, and I wrote this for the NAD. The messenger to the remnant reminds us that race relations will worsen before the coming of Christ. Mm. Long, before, long before the rise of CRT, I'm reading directly what I wrote to them. Ellen White wrote to Southern workers, as time advances, this is 9T, page 205, 9T, page 205, as time advances and race prejudices increase, it will be impossible for whites to do a work for colored people that they could do now. Okay. As time advances is one of Mrs. White's go-to formulas for describing the approaching end of history. If you just study mm. that phrase in Ellen White's writings, as time advances, that's one of her key formulas. Ellen White's eschatological perspective anticipated an increase in racial animus and activity. For her, the reality of the time advance drove home the necessity for urgency in our mission service. For the North American Division Church to fail to witness to God's truth during this end time reality is to miss a critical moment of ministry opportunity. So that was mm. in quote. That was what I read. Okay. So it's more important now than it's ever been. What we see, colleagues, I believe, is a fulfillment of Ellen White's formula. We're watching an escalation of racial antipathy. And thus it's more mm -hmm. important, not less, more important for us to give witness to the kingdom's values around race and equity and inclusion. It's more important now than it's ever been. But we should not expect that it's going to get better. According to Ellen White, 19205, as time advances, race prejudices will increase. And so what we're seeing are not anomalies. They are actually mm. fulfilled. And, and doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense? We've said, yeah. Revelation chapter 7, John, that the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn and that mm. the worst of human nature will express itself. Well, if self-interest and ethnocentrism and racial violence and domination and oppression, if those things are not the worst of human nature, what is? What is? Mm -hmm. And we will see those things expressed more and more. But it's also when it is at its worst, that's when God calls Noah. That's when God calls wow. Abraham. That's when God mm -hmm. calls Jesus. That's when God calls Paul. When it's at its worst is when God wants his witnesses to stand up and witness to the kingdom. When it's Preach at its worst, brother. not when it's better, not when it's its best. Wow. I, you, know, just, just, you know, just this week, you can look at uh, the news. I mean, uh, the infighting that's happening in the political parties on Capitol Hill uh, over race, over the, 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 the redrawing of the, the voting the district lines and um, even uh, this the January 6th um, insurrection, <laughs> you know, or, you know, but, but you <laughs> see, you actually see all of this unfolding before our eyes. It, it's before not, it's eyes. not, a, it's not to come. It is happening right now. If, if you, if you ever want to read something that will absolutely break your heart, read the testimonies of, of the victims of human sexual trafficking. And to think that a human being could treat mm. another human being this way, you, you, you say, what is it about human nature 
you know, and that's the latest form of slavery, right? That's the most popular form of slavery around the world, human sexual trafficking, children. Mm -hmm. And you say a human being would do this to another human being? But this is the time when like those nuns in Central Park in February of 2020, they named Talitha Kum, a group of nuns marched against human sexual trafficking. And I had to ask myself, where are the Adventists? Mm. Where, are the, where are the Adventists? What, why aren't we interested in these things? It breaks my heart. So, but all of us have to do what we can do where we are. There's, a, there's an interesting question in the chat that I'd like to address just briefly. And, and that's the question, why are so many Seventh-day Adventist Trump followers? Uh, was the question. And, and for me, the most helpful response to that is the work of David Williams, uh, who is a professor of uh, public health at Harvard. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. He's also an African-American uh, and a very amazing person that I, I, I treasure uh, to have gotten to know just a little bit. And, and he has done some of the most crucial work on health disparities. Mm -hmm. and showing how discrimination and slights mm -hmm. and so on that, that people experience in the course of life has mental health and physical health impacts. Mm -hmm. Prejudice mm -hmm. is not neutral. Prejudice mm -hmm. harms people seriously. Mm -hmm. And he's demonstrated that was with careful research. But then he said something that totally blew me away. He says the newest health disparity is working class whites wow. because they are often at the bottom of the totem pole living in the same food deserts etc right. right. wow. and this is part of the trump base is people who feel like society's passed them by and here's one person at least uh, who seems to be naming the problem uh, the other class that uh, that strongly uh, supports trump is evangelicals and they too are feeling extremely marginalized right now because so much of the of the media discourse is putting down Christianity and Bible thumpers and 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 you know, Bible thumping bigots and so on. And when that narrative is just drummed day after day, people feel very marginalized. And so um, so these are the two groups I think that form the base and they they see in Trump somebody who recognizes their challenges and is at least speaking to it. So um, wow. again, God is at work. <laughs> You can't just black and white. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I should I should say that uh, our colleague Dr. Paul um, Anson Paul is having some audio problems, and so oh, okay. his mic is okay. not working. And okay, so right. that's why he's been quiet. Some of you are wondering, so you got to text us. That maybe answer, you, something, tweak something. Yeah. Man, put on your AirPods. Maybe that. Yeah, and that listen, and you might you. just text us, man. Text us what you want to say. Yeah. Well, and, and, and now that and now that he can't speak, I'm going to just say we normally can't shut him up. So that's. <laughs> hey, the more we can ask how should we understand Jesus is asking his disciples 
to turn the other cheek in the context of social justice. Um, in his earthly ministry, was social justice a priority for Jesus? You kind of alluded to it a little bit in your in in, in uh, the answer you gave before, but mm -hmm. but here, how how has how is the context of social justice truly 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 seen in Jesus's mission when he talked about turning the other cheek? John, yeah, you know, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you hear that statement, turn the other cheek, it sounds like passive. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, just give it up and, and, and let the oppressor go free. It's not the way it played originally. Mm -hmm. uh, also, this, uh, similar to that is, is the Roman soldier asking to carry a pack for a mile. And what does Jesus say? Two miles. All right. Mm -hmm. But what is happening there is the victim is taking charge of the situation. The soldier has the legal right to demand that you carry the pack. He's the boss. But when you carry it the second mile, he's no longer the boss of you. Mm -hmm. He has taken control of the situation. You are now on top. And with the with the hitting the you know, the whole idea of hitting someone on the cheek is to humiliate them. And if you say, Is that your best shot? you know, and you turn the other cheek, you are in control of the situation now regardless of how they respond. And it can really uh, mess with people's minds when that happens. They expect you to be cowed by their behavior. Martin Luther King understood this and Selma and so on. That was that was done to a T and it totally changed the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm, wow. Dr. Pollard, so, any comments? Well, I was, John took my last comment. I was going to say, we as a people have lived with Martin Luther King actually implementing that council <clears throat> and watching the, the the indomitable the indomitable power of meekness. See, uh, one of the things we see about the Lamb in the Book of Revelation is that there is an indomitable meekness that provides mm -hmm. him power. Re remember, in Revelation chapter five, when when we are asked who can take the sealed book right from the hand of him who sits on the throne. And John, you know, the elder tells John, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? That's, that's John, right? So you expect to see Aslan, right? Let's go to C.S. Lewis. You expect to see Aslan, you know, fangs, bared, mane, flaring. John says, I looked and I saw a lamb bruised mm -hmm. and broken and bloodied, but still standing. The, the, this, this idea that the indomitable, indomitable meekness is true power in the end time is really what those passages, in my opinion, like in Matthew and others, those Sermon on the Mount type passages actually point us to. And Dr. King exhibited that and, and he broke the power of the segregationist system mm -hmm. through submitting to undeserved and unmerited suffering. That's that's powerful. It's it's just powerful. You you don't have it's divine. It's supernatural. There's no the, the only word for that is it's supernatural. That's the only that's the only way you can describe it. John? At the cross, Satan's mission was to destroy Christ. Hmm. He wanted to break him. He wanted mm -hmm. to get him to, to bow down, to come down from the cross, whatever, call the 10,000 legions, et cetera. 
that would have been a failure. But he couldn't break him. In Jesus' silence, in his meekness, in his graciousness on the cross, Satan threw everything he had, and he couldn't break him. So when you hear in the in in the in the Bible that uh, the cross is God's victory over the powers of Satan, Satan has won every battle with human beings. He's always gotten us to yield at some point, but he couldn't break Christ, Amen. and his Amen. power was broken at the cross. Mm. Wow! So so now, so are now, you wait, saying? So I, may, may I just say, right? May I just say one okay. other thing, though? May I just say one other thing? Okay. Now, let, let me tell you a quote that's a favorite of people, of Adventists, who say passivity is the way to move forward. They quote those texts, turn the other cheek, they quote those. Mm-hmm. But they go to the Desire of Ages, and there's a chapter in Desire of Ages called Not With Outward Show. Not With Outward Show. And in that passage, they say, Ellen White said, Jesus attempted no civil reforms. You ever, anybody ever heard that passage? Jesus launched uh, no civil reform, and therefore neither should we. Okay, so there are two problems with that interpretation. The context of not without would show, Ellen White is criticizing people who think that they can bring in the eschatological kingdom of God through individual action and legislation. Mm -hmm. And she's saying Jesus never attempted that, and neither should we. Now that, that's important because that's the, that's the show-stopping passage from Ellen G. White for many people until you read the context. That's number one. Number two, if in fact that passage meant passivity, then the grandest violators of that passage are Ellen G. White and the early pioneers. Mm, come on. Because, because their relationship to slavery— when Ellen White said that the 1850 fugitive slave law should not be obeyed, when the early Adventists agitated for abolitionism, they were attempting civil reform. They mm. were attempting, they were launching civil reform, but they did not see it as bringing in the ultimate kingdom of God. And so in our activism, in our activism, we are not trying to bring in the final kingdom of God. Now, there's a weakness in listening to Dr. King. Can I say that? I know I know. Mm. Dr. King is St. Martin for many of us. I know that. <laughs> I know that. I know he is. I know he's St. Martin, Luke McKay. Okay. But now, let me just tell you, Dr. King, I still praise God for his work, but Dr. King was a liberal theologian from Boston. Okay. Dr. King... Dr. King, in the Boston School of Social Theology. That's what I mean. Okay. Dr. King appropriated eschatological passages in his sermons, and that's why they resonated with church audiences, until justice rolls down like rivers and righteousness like a mighty stream. Those passages, those eschatological passages in the book of Isaiah and Amos and from those 8th century prophets that, that Dr. Pauline talked about, anticipate a final displacement of everything human. But mm-hmm. on the way to that, that's not applying that to the 1960 civil rights movement is not the final stop for those passages. So Mrs. Ellen White and the early Adventists, they could believe that one day righteousness would run down like rivers and waters like a mighty stream. And at the same time, 
they could seek to work for the salvation and the liberation of the then four million colored people who had been not even fugitive slave law, not even released from slavery at that point, but later they would be, they would be released from slavery. So Ellen White, if that passage, Jesus intact, enacted no civil reforms means that we never do anything. We just, we just preach the three angels messages and we don't get involved. Then they were the grandest violators because they did exactly, mm-hmm. they exactly attempted civil reform. That's exactly what they tried to do. So, so, so I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, it's, there's an angst within me because, you know, I've heard so much that we as Seventh-day Adventists ought not to be so involved um, out there and, and continue to just share the 2300 day prophecy and preach. preach. But, but yet still, what you're sharing with me today is that social justice needs to be a coat that I'm wearing, not necessarily to bring God's mm-hmm. return. But to, to to do what I need to do to to, okay. to make a difference in my society, uh, uh, but but let me let me let me let me ask you to to really make it clear for the the member who's listening today um, in in the pew today. Um, we, we we're talking about Ellen White's days, but today, can you make that something? Um, share something that will help us to see. Uh, today, how I, as a member, can 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 embrace social justice and know that I'm doing what God wants me to do, Doctor Dr. Pauline? Pauline. Okay, yeah. Well, you stumped me just a little bit there uh, because mm. I, I I wasn't uh, thinking in in those detailed terms. Uh, but I think uh, for starters, uh, anyone, uh, particularly if they look like me, uh, should start by praying that God will bring diverse people into your life and bring them close mm-hmm. to you because it is as we get to know people as we're face to face with them as we hear their stories as we hear their sorrow their tragedies and so on it changes the dynamic when you can you marginalize people that you don't know and when you really know somebody and you you, you learn to love them you know my relationship with Jan Robertson was was very formative for me uh, because here was somebody mm-hmm. that I admired to the hilt and and yet everything about him represented something different than what I had grown up with. It was uh, it was amazing. So get to know people uh, and, and God will bring the right people. And, and I think anybody of, of whatever background can say, uh, open my heart to, to new people. I, I may need to stop praying that because now Buddhists and Hindus are coming to see me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but again, once again, in my mind, probably more recently, I, I had still held, uh, you know, Hindus, for example, you see those wild looking gods and you might think, well, these people are crazy, etc. They are some of the most uh, thoughtful, deeply psychological. They, they understand deep issues of, of life and thinking and so on. Uh, God has not left them totally uh, out of the Holy Spirit's range, you see. So I'm, I'm learning stuff every day. So that's that's one big thing. Uh, and a second one is do what you can locally. Uh, I've joined a police reform unit in, in my own uh, community that, uh, that helps to monitor uh, things. And uh, thanks be to God, the relationship uh, with the uh, police, et cetera, is good. Uh, in our community, but uh, to to be active locally where you can, uh, I think, is part of the gospel. And of course, when you are making a difference locally, as Les said earlier, 
people at some point say, uh, maybe this church has got something we need to look into as well. Mm-hmm. Amen. I, I, I think, I think, Roger, I was going to respond to your question by saying, mm-hmm. similar to what John just said in pivoting off his last statement, if you, so, so Christ's method alone, Ellen White says, will give true success in reaching the people. Anybody ever read that statement? It's from Ministry mm-hmm. of Healing. She said, what did she say he did? She said he, he uh, Christ's method alone, will give, he sympathized with them. He uh, he ministered to their needs. Um, he he won their he oh he he worked among them as one who desired their good, right? He ministered mm-hmm. to their needs. He sympathized with them. He won their confidence. Then he said, "Follow me." If you don't identify with where people are hurting, why should they listen to your twenty three hundred day prophecy? Why is that even interesting to me? It's only as as we do the identification and the service to communities. See, some some Adventists, now I'm going to get on some of us now, some Adventists think we really have to change our teachings. I don't think we have to change them. I think we just have to live them out. I think we have to apply them. (laughs) I I think we have to get into communities and let people see what our doctrine Mm -hmm. of health actually means for a community. what they need to see what our doctrine of education, what financial discipline looks like. They need to see that. They need to see what service looks like in communities. And then those people will say, as Dr. John just said, tell me why you're doing this. Why are you doing this? Um, I I think that's important. And, And I think as we make ourselves servants, like Mother Teresa, it is said mm-hmm. today that there are more Catholics in Calcutta today because of Mother Teresa than 10,000 popes because, my, my, my. Of, Mother Te- because of Mother <laughs> Teresa. And my, so my, my. When, when we yes. do that service, that radical service to communities, wherever the needs are, and often justice ministry is one of those needs, then God is going to open avenues for people to want to hear what we have to say. Now, I see Wu, that's my nephew, I see his question here. Uh, Wu said, how come these old people won't get out of the way? <laughs> that's what it looks Whoa. like. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my nephew. So, so let, me, let, me just take a, let me take a shot at his question. Let me take a shot at my nephew's question. Okay. So what I think we need to do is I see my me personally, if I can personalize a little bit, I, I happen to work in a wonderful institution where you got so many young leaders who are bright and bright. All you got to do is look at OUBN to see what we're doing. My job is facilitator. That, that's my job. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be a tech whiz. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to do any of that. My job is to facilitate a vision for the community and a vision for the university, and to empower these younger leaders to be all that they can be on behalf of the mission of our university. I think there's a little bit of a danger that if we if we relegate anybody to irrelevance, whether they are 25 or 55, I think I think we may miss what God is doing in the in the lives of those people. So I think my hazard would be my caution, my yellow light would be let's be careful that we don't automatically relegate but we, we don't become automatically ageist, ageist one way or the other. 
You know, one mm-hmm. way, like, you know, people, my general, man, these young people don't know what in the world they're doing. Why? Let's like, blah, 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 blah. Or on the other hand, young, my young friends, and I have many of them, who say, uh, boy, these old people don't know what they're doing. They're completely out of touch. How can we come together and say, the old men for wisdom, the young men for strength? Isn't that a Bible text or something like that? Mm-hmm. If, it, if it's not, that's from the Gospel of Louisiana. But you know, <laughs> so, so so that that you know, so that's in the book of Louisiana. So, um, but I think that's, but, but we do need to take Wu's question seriously because we must come together. The task requires, like the civil rights movement, the task requires coordinated activity. Mm, I like that. I every I like church that. To, every church needs to ask itself. If we close the doors of this building tomorrow, would anyone in town notice? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, there, there seems to be um, a hesitancy among some of our members, and I would even say uh, leaders within our church, to take an active role <clears throat> in uh, social justice uh, events, because in these events, there are other organizations out there. And so the fear is from some of the members, I've, you know, I've heard it and, you know, I'm, my assumption is from some of our leaders not to take an active role or maybe do something on our own because, you know, maybe what some of the groups stand for at their origins is not what we stand for. What would you say to those individuals um, who take that stand and do you see an emergence among our our leaders uh, within our church, and it could be <clears throat> pastors, conference leaders, to take a more active role in social justice, as did our pioneers, with Dr., as Dr. Pollard pointed out? Um, Dr. Pollard? Okay, so I was looking for a quotation, and uh, I found it in that Sabbath school lesson that you're going to hear so much about, right? I found it in that Sabbath school lesson. Um, so colleagues, um, you know, so here, here, here is one of the questions I wrote the one on the book of revelation, John. So here is one of the questions that I gave for the audience to discuss, um, four years, February 9, 2020, New York times. And this is a direct quote for years, nuns around the world. I'm, I got to get this a little bit bigger. For years, nuns around the world have worked to help traffic and enslave people break free from the conditions that ensnare millions of men, women, and children. They have prayed for them and they have offered hospitality. On Sunday, they marched on St. Peter's Square for them. Quote, there have never been as many slaves in the world as they are today, said Gabriella Batani, the international coordinator of Talitha Kum, a global network of nuns a global network of nuns that assist trafficked persons uh, and and, uh, said in kicking off the march. And then she said, only together can we break the chain of trafficking and slavery. And so this was the discussion question Mm. for this lesson. Suppose you were invited to the march against human trafficking. What would be your response and why? To what extent can we stand with others in a shared fight against injustice? And how can we know to stand with others, and how can we know when to stand separately? Okay, that, that's similar to your question. Okay, so the early Adventist, <clears throat> you don't have to sign on to every aspect of a social justice agenda 
because people believe certain things. In the women's in the women's temperance movement, in the Christian temperance movement, one of the most prominent voices was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now, now Ellen White endorsed this work. She endorsed this work. But 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 Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1895 published the Women's Bible. In the Women's Bible, Elizabeth said, anything that looks like it oppresses women, I'm cutting it out of the Bible. And she put scissors to the Bible. Uh, my, my, my. Uh, wives obey your husband, uh, wives submit to your husband, she cut that out. Um, <laughs> judges, judges 19, about the lady who had been passed around, she cut that out. Um, uh, the man, uh, Lot, offering his daughters, uh, he cut, she cut, she took, put the scissors to the Bible. My goodness. <laughs> now, Ellen White didn't believe in putting the scissors to the Bible, but she stood with Stanton when it came to the issue of temperance. Hmm. There were abolitionists who didn't believe in the agenda. So you identify the cause and you enter on your terms. So let's get to the real heart of that question. Black Lives Matter. That's really why that question comes about in many places, because there are people in Black Lives Matter who believe all kinds of things, but but that's not the core concern. The core concern is, do Black Lives Matter? That's the question we're answering. It seems simple, doesn't it? And if they matter, it means that policing will be done in a certain way. It means that education will be delivered in a certain way. It means that community housing will be done. It means that healthcare disparities will be addressed if black lives matter. I don't have to, except because somebody believes in African ancestral religions and another person is Marxist. I don't have to sign on to any of that to support the core of the cause. And that's wow. what the example of the early Adventists mean to me. That's what that means to me. One footnote to that, uh, Oxford University produced a biography of Ellen White. And one thing I learned in there is that the Women's Christian Temperance Union was one of the leading advocates of Sunday legislation. And yet Ellen White spoke at their rallies when it had to do with temperance. So she Wait picked that wow. issue. And join together with them, you know, uh, this uh, is uh, background also further to what Les was saying. So Ellen White was, uh, and she was actually asked about that. How can you do that? She said, uh, I'm doing God's work here with the temperance issue. Uh, on the other issue, uh, we <laughs> we didn't look at each other a different way. <laughs> you see? So that was, that was one of the leading entities in America at the time promoting Sunday legislation which we mm. thought was a sign of the end, right? Eschatology, all the rest mm -hmm. of that. And yet Ellen White spoke at their rallies. She didn't just attend. Uh, she was a speaker. Uh, that's a pretty big uh, commitment to the cause, I would say. I see in the chat, I see in the chat here, it says, uh, Hodges says, Ellen White was a liberal. I don't think we should. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Ellen White, Ellen, Ellen White was a Christian. See, That's right. when, you're, when you're a Christian, there will be times when you look like a liberal to the conservatives, and there will be times when you look like a conservative to the liberals. And that's God is, that's God is at work, <laughs> both <laughs> liberal and conservative. Yeah. Satan is at work. Uh, just, just a little footnote to that. Uh, as far as I know, 
she never uses the word liberal in a positive uh, in a negative sense and never uses the word conservative in a positive sense <laughs> she's usually talking about money okay uh, you know be generous uh, as to what she's meaning but you know if you if you want to play play in that game <laughs> uh, you can say yeah okay uh it, there's a sense in which she was yeah i i got i got one more question and raj i know you probably have a, another question to end this up but um in talking about social justice a little bit off script but i think it um uh kind of gives us a, a good understanding of social justice right so and talking about social justice right we're talking about actually um, you know, trying to promote justice. So are we taking a view where justice is basically about freedom? Or are we saying justice is basically about fairness? Are we saying justice is basically about happiness? Or are we saying justice is basically about power? So is it a libertarian, liberal, uh, utilitarian, <laughs> or postmodern? <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> John, you want to go for it? <laughs> oh, thank you, Les. <laughs> you want to go for it? <laughs> yeah. Freedom, One happiness, the... power. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, perhaps this is, this is helpful because... Uh, are we talking about equality of opportunity or are we talking about equality of outcome? Yeah, All right. Very what I think critical very race important. theory was saying is that the equality of opportunity happened in the 1960s, but the outcomes didn't change. Wow. You see? And so mm -hmm. CRT is saying we need to deal with the outcomes. The problem is in a, in a land of freedom, some people are smarter than others. Mm -hmm. uh, some people work harder than others. Mm -hmm. uh, some people uh, have more advantages than others to start with mm -hmm. in life, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. So in a free context, you're not going to have equality of outcome in the fullest sense. The only way you can make that happen is by force. Mm -hmm. And that then you get into it. You're talking about the character of God. God never forces anybody. Look at, look at Revelation 13, okay? In Revelation 13, God, uh, Satan is the one forcing, not God. So we're, we're at a rooted character of God issue. So the answer, like most things, is probably not either or. Mm -hmm. If equality of opportunity hasn't fixed the town that got flooded, okay? Mm -hmm. Wow. Then we have to find a way mm -hmm. to make that up. Okay, we have to find a way to do that. And it may not be easy to find that way. To go the other extreme, you know, equality of outcome uh, would bring us to a place probably none of us would be happy to be in either. So the extremes tend to be, unfortunately, politics is all at extremes. The extremes don't seem to work. Uh, somewhere in between, uh, we have to find a place where where people get the help that they need without destroying their initiative and et cetera. Mm, Amen. Wow. wow. Amen. I, I, I think my I think my response is ditto. I, I think it's ditto. Okay. The, the 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 reality is that every disparity cannot simply be it cannot simply be assumed that every single disparity is a result of uh, discrimination. Now, now that's a hard word for us as black people, but if if we assume that every, every single disparity is a result of discrimination, then we're going to put ourselves in a place where we never reach the goal. How do we wow. guarantee that quality education 
-hmm. is offered in urban schools. What does that look like? And then once we can deliver that, we will never get away from, you know, I work at an institution. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are not smarter than others. Colleagues, I don't, I don't mean to discourage you all today, but I could ask every one of you, are you smarter than a 12 year old? I could ask every one of you. Now, now I'm, it's a joke, it's a joke now, it's a joke. <laughs> Are you smarter than twelve year old? Here, here's why. Look at look at Anselm. He wants to talk because he thinks he is. But boy, I love that mic. I love what that mic is doing. Okay, so 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 let me just tell you. Let me just tell you. This year, in our one hundred twenty fifth year, we admitted the youngest student in the history of Oakwood. She's considered cognitively gifted. She's twelve years old. We admitted her as a sophomore in wow. May, in May. Have mercy. Over the summer, she became a junior. <laughs> now it ain't, her name is, her name, her, her name is Elena Wicker. You can look, guess Google her. You can look her up. She's cognitively gifted. She's a non-adventist. She chose Oakwood she, wow. because of the yeah. STEM program. Okay. She's on the cover of this year, this once Ebony Magazine. If you Google it, uh, you know, my, my nephew Wu is here. Help us, uh, all, all, all the techies. He, okay, so Google her. So, so that's Elena. Now, what do you say in a class of 20-year-olds in biochemistry? She's killing it, and it looks effortless. Mm-hmm. Because she is in the 1% of people who are cognitively gifted. She, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and, and when you're not talking with her about biochemistry or, or, or astrophysics, she's a 12 year old giggly, all the things 12 year old little girls do. Okay. So colleagues, I think there is some work internally that we have to do. I think we have to continue pressing. What is justice? It's pushing for equality of opportunity, making sure that underfunded schools are appropriately funded. How does that look? You're going to have to have people on both sides of the political spectrum. You don't have to agree with everybody. I'm in a red state. I don't have to agree with everybody who supports Donald Trump in order for them to help me get the money I need to deliver a mobile food market that takes food to underserved communities. I I, I don't have to agree with everything. I, I call him. I say, Senator, I need your help. Can you help Mm -hmm. me? Senator, can you help me? And they help you, right? For lots of good reasons, many of their own. So we've got to do some work. I see what Jason is saying. If we pursue equity without, it was a beautiful quote, claiming to pursue equality without addressing Mm -hmm. equity is a mockery. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we've we've got to work somewhere in the middle, I think, Jason. I think that's where we have to work. We have to find the middle. It's not either or, because here's the other side too, I've learned in working with the California State Assembly. uh, I'm the chairman of the Alabama Council of Independent Colleges. That's 24 Christian institutions, privates. Okay, we we lobby in Montgomery at the State Assembly. Okay, you're probably not gonna find people politically that way I am. That's, it's red, it's it's blood red in the California, I mean, in the uh, Alabama Assembly. 
but we can find common cause around community interests. And they, and they will help you with that. They will help mm. you with that. Wow. But, wow. but if I wait until their politics, if I wait until their politics change in order to get help for our community, I'll never get help for our community. Listen, one of the greatest takeaways that I got today is that I can't sit on the sidelines or sit in the pew in the corner and just expect things to change. I've got to get in the game. I've got to get educated. I've got to get up on what I don't know, because that's what's going to help me to really live out the gospel uh, in in 2022.